Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Technology's Potential Impact on Economic Growth, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Brian Bovino. With me today is Patrick Showitz and Michael Albrecht. Both are global strategists in our multi-asset solutions team within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today we'll be discussing the paper this group has authored, Technology, Productivity, and the Labor Force. Technology, particularly workforce automation and artificial intelligence, will affect economic growth rates and capital market returns in ways that are difficult to foresee. Let's consider how these changes might unfold. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Let's start the conversation talking about technology as a topic and acknowledging the fact that it's not a new topic. So why are we talking about this now? One of the key drivers really for us was that we're getting an increasing amount of questions on this, both internally and externally. Clearly, it's something that's been going on for a while. And as we started to look at this, I guess the biggest point to us was just the speed, the breadth, the depth of what's going on all around us. We can see it in everyday life, technology as it picks up and affects all sectors of life and all sectors of the economy. And I guess... That's what we're seeing as the differentiator relative to what happened historically. So when people say, what's different today? Why are you talking about it today? Technologies that have come in the past haven't necessarily affected every facet of the economy like we're seeing now. And I guess the counter argument that people often bring to this is, well, okay, so you're talking about technology, but hasn't productivity been really bad since the financial crisis? And Again, in looking at this, this isn't necessarily a counter-argument to looking at it today because if you look at this historically, that's often happened. It's actually often happened that you've had a technological breakthrough that may have looked quite important at the time, and then it's taken often decades before you've actually seen something in the economy. And sometimes people call this a paradox. So with artificial intelligence technology and computing, that's actually one of the paradoxes that people have discussed before in history. So a famous economist called Robert Sola, who developed one of the main models for economic growth, said famously in the late 80s, we see computers everywhere around us, but not in the productivity statistics. And then it took another decade before you suddenly saw that growth boost that actually came from that wave of IT and computerization. And we think something similar is going on today. So we think it's absolutely valid to talk about it today, even though we may not necessarily know when this will be reflected in economic data. And it reminds us of what a famous U.S. futurist once said, Roy Amara once said, we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short run and then underestimate it in the long run. And we think that's what's going on again today. So how different is the current wave of technological change compared to past eras of profound technological disruption, namely the Industrial Revolution? The Industrial Revolution was really all about steam, internal combustion engines, automobile electricity, really physical power, really automating bronze. This is a a role that the horse used to play in the economy. What we're really focusing on now is artificial intelligence, and this has the capability to automate brains. We've seen over the last several years really an exponential growth in processing speed, data storage, transmission. All of this is available instantaneously, and that's really enabling this AI revolution. Meanwhile, the human brain isn't really improving. 
Now, before they were obsolete, there was a major place for horses in the global economy for hundreds of years. Right now, there's things that only people can do, but that's becoming less true for the first time in human history. And that relates to one of the big puzzles of artificial intelligence research that's been going on since the 50s, really, when researchers kind of thought that some things were going to be easy and some things were going to be hard. And what they thought was going to be easy was actually things that people can do, so just moving around in space. And actually, they thought that's really hard or found that's really hard. And things that they thought were going to be really hard, like chess, for instance, actually were some of the things that got solved very early on. So actually now we're getting to that second phase where actually the things that were hard originally are now also becoming possible. And that's what you said, Mike, actually stuff that only humans could do until now, actually a lot of that stuff suddenly becomes possible for machines. And that sort of speaks to the ubiquity of what's going on. And then that's an interesting point you bring up. So I guess as we define action, you have routine, non-routine, physical, non-physical. So in the past where physical routine activities could be easily replicable, now we're seeing instances where artificial intelligence entering the conversation, there's the ability to execute non-routine activities, which is fundamentally different from the past. Right, and you see these classifications where people really split it into four boxes between physical, non-physical, and routine, non-routine. And clearly what's been pretty easy to automate has been physical routine. And now you're moving into you know, non-physical routine. Non-routine will stay harder to automate, will stay harder for machines. But even there, I think inroads will be made, but it'll take longer. So this is clearly a topic we can go many routes in terms of discussion. And this paper covers a lot of ground. Productivity has largely stalled in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So how much could new technology provide a much-needed boost to productivity growth? And how does this translate to GDP growth? Well, the exact timing of the impact of this new technology on GDP and productivity is difficult to forecast, but the long-term capital market assumption horizon is a long one. So it doesn't matter if it takes five years or 15 years for some of these technologies to come through. One example that we think about a lot is automated cars. And right now, there's a small but not insignificant portion of the U.S. workforce, about 5 million employees operating taxis, trucks, and other ground transportation. Now, there's definitely this objection that you can't just automate all of them away because there's more to operating these vehicles than just driving. Someone has to get out and actually deliver a physical package, for instance. But if you assume that just over half of these jobs are automated over the next 20 years and you've redeployed these employees at average productivity, that has the potential to add about a tenth of a percentage point per year to productivity growth. Now, extending this to the whole broader economy and looking at all the jobs that might be automated over our long-term capital market assumptions horizon, we looked to a couple other studies, and one of those is Frey and Osborne at Oxford. And they estimate that about 50% of the workforce can be automated over the horizon that we're looking at here. And that could potentially boost GDP by about 3.5 points per year, assuming and this is very important, that workers are redeployed at average productivity. This all describes the effect of replacing jobs, but there's also the potential for complementing existing ones. You can imagine that not only are taxi drivers being replaced, but the person who's driving to work can now use that time in the car to actually do some of their work when before they were paying attention to the road. 
we also have the opportunity to create new industries and likely certain industries that become more efficient will have a greater output. You can imagine, for instance, that if we have driverless cars, that will greatly reduce the cost of transportation and we might have a lot more delivery services in the economy going forward. So in our growth accounting framework, how that all comes together, we think about labor capital and productivity as really being the key drivers. Productivity is the key one by which automation is likely to affect the economy, increasing the amount of output per employee. But you also have the potential for deepening of capital and investment through a lot of this infrastructure that might be built out to accommodate the artificial intelligence and other technologies. Finally, we net all these out and we come up with a more modest assumption for potential upside to the U.S. and global growth number of about 1% to 1.5%. We should say, if we take a step back and look at the rest of the long-term capital market assumptions, when we look at developed economies as a whole, we only see trend growth over the next 10 to 15 years in real terms, so stripping out inflation of 1.5%. So seeing an additional boost in the 1% to 1.5% range would be pretty significant, we would say, even if that's perhaps the upside of what we would see, but it's a pretty significant boost. So positive expectations, both from a productivity and a GDP growth perspective. Let's address the elephant in the room. Anytime we talk about the introduction of significant technological change, the discussion also centers around major job displacement, wage inequality. This often hasn't come to fruition, but could this time specifically be different? Yeah, and that is why I just said, you know, maybe these one to one and a half percent are sort of the upside of what we could see, because as you say, absolutely, there is a downside to all of this. If replacement of workers is one of the key drivers of the upside to productivity from automation, well, what do you do with those workers? And, you know, if you just assume that they get another job immediately at the average wage or the average productivity, well, then you can ignore that and just sort of work out what the impact would be. But clearly, that may not be the case. Now, historically, if you look at the very long sweep of history, those fears have always been around. You can go down all the way back to the automation of cloth weaving, where the term Luddite comes from, when the Luddites were basically concerned about losing their jobs and started rebelling. But, you know, in the long run, there was no mass unemployment. And you can repeat that when we invented the car. You know, the horses may now be unemployed, but there's no mass unemployment that has lasted for a very long time. So if you look over the long sweep of history, you'd say, well, we've always had these fears. They've never come to fruition. Now, there will clearly be transitional issues in the sense that eventually new jobs will be found. People will find different things to do, but it will take time. You know, it may not be, unfortunately, the same people. Maybe to some extent it will be, but there will be certain people that will actually find it very hard. And we can see this around us, right, in areas of economies where there has been structural change. Now, that may not have been totally driven by technology, the other things, but we can look around the U.S., we can look around Europe. There are areas that have had big change in industrial structure that still have persistently high unemployment. So we can't ignore these problems. Okay, so you're saying there's possibilities for more permanent labor displacement and increased wage inequality. This isn't just transitional unemployment. So what other implications might that have on the economy? Well, if we do assume that because of the unprecedented scale and speed of these developments, there is actually a more lasting impact on the labor force and unemployment, I think it's worth thinking about this in a structured way. 
What we've talked about so far is really the supply side of the economy, the productive capacity that's affected by how many people you have and what their productivity is. And economists often tend to assume that if the supply grows, the demand will follow. But I guess that's really where the problem might be with these developments. If there is a higher level of unemployment, that will put downward pressure on the wages of people that are employed, that will hit their ability to spend. So you might replace a worker with a robot. That's fine. But that robot isn't going to go out and get a haircut. It isn't going to buy shaving foam. It isn't going to go to a restaurant. So what's the spending capacity here? And there might clearly be some impacts that government may have to step in and actually tackle. And let's not forget, there are also differential impacts on different skill levels. What we've seen so far is much more people with lower skills being hit rather than people with higher skills being hit. So there'll be different impacts for different groups as well. Given the potential societal impacts, how can governments help harness the positive and mitigate the negative effects of technological change? And then more specifically, what role can skills deepening play? So I would highlight two things here. First of all, there's the importance of keeping people in their jobs through education and retraining. The problem here is that governments don't have a great track record themselves of these retraining programs. And so we think that really the driving force behind these changes still needs to be with private companies going forward. It's actually a good point. In a recent headline, Apple, they're bringing more jobs onshore, and they're actually launching training programs to help lower-skilled workers become software developers. So it's exactly to the point you just mentioned. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I think when it comes to the role of the government in actually encouraging that to happen, that can be done through tax incentives. Even if the government succeeds in encouraging employers to continue to invest in training and retraining or education and retraining of their workforces, there might still be an impact on the distribution of income in the aggregate. And you've seen that certainly come through in the recent wave of populism across the world. And if the government does help to distribute the earnings across the economy, that will also help to maintain purchasing power, to your point, Patrick. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just look at the wave of populism that we've really seen spreading across the world. I mean, that should be a motivating factor for governments to actually take this challenge seriously because what we're talking about here, automation has to be a big driver in terms of the pressure that people in their daily life that drives this upsurge in populism. So taking a step back, let's talk about kind of the crux of the long-term capital market assumptions paper, and that is forward-looking expectations for asset class and interest rates. So how do we see technological change impacting Right, absolutely. Let, let's bring it back to what we're actually here to do and what are we expecting for asset classes and economies. Now, at the most simple level, if you took the conclusion that we drew earlier, that automation might add 1% to 1.5% to, to GDP growth over time. At the most naive level, if you look at the big asset classes, say equities, at the most naive level, it would probably add something like 1% to 1.5% to returns. There might be a few other things from changes in margin profitability that are hard to predict. But if top lines grow by 1% to 1.5% faster, that's probably going to flow through. Put that into context, we think developed equities will do about 5.5% over the next 10 to 15 years. If there is an upside risk that it looks more like seven, you know, that's pretty substantial and should affect 
investors' asset allocation decisions at the end of the day. Now, that's sort of the top level, but there are more nuances to this that are harder to predict, admittedly. But for instance, what of the difference between emerging markets and developed markets? At the end of the day, labor costs are going to be a big motivator for automation. So the higher skilled the person, or the more costly the person is, shall we say, the more likely you are to automate that. So if emerging markets have a key labor cost advantage, that might be diminished. So is that going to actually be pushed pen a little bit more in the direction of developed market performance? And then the other thing is, if we look at what drives differences in returns across regions, one of the big things is differences in demographics. So in the growth of the labor force, The big example here being Japan, where the labor force is shrinking today, and that's detracting from our growth expectations. Now, what if, and it's a big if, but what if actually, well, if we're running out of people, let's automate more and basically have more robots. Sounds a bit science fiction, but, um, you know, if that happens, could that shrink the differences in growth and return rates as well? A bit more speculative, but you can sort of see that coming through in a whole number of areas. And the effect on interest rates? Yeah, that's something of more of an open question and a little more nuanced because you have these cross currents. On the one hand, you definitely have that higher productivity leading to better growth, and historically, higher growth has resulted in higher real interest rates because there's more investment opportunities in the economy. If you have higher expected returns on equities, for instance, and you keep basically a constant premium on what you might expect on an equity risk premium, that's going to translate to higher real yields, higher interest rates. However, at the same time, the idea that we have reduced labor bargaining power and that might keep inflation and wages in check might also keep yields lower on a nominal basis. So while equities, definitely the story is very positive, we have less confidence in the net impact on bonds. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about technology in a more general sense. To make this a little more palpable for listeners, can we talk about technologies that are more investable today? Yeah, so I think those general trends are definitely observable and specific companies are actually implementing these technologies. And there's a lot of specific areas this is happening. We go into a lot of detail in our white paper, but a couple of my favorites are cloud computing, artificial intelligence, robotics. Looking within artificial intelligence, maybe bring this back to the examples of the driverless cars, there's plenty of producers and suppliers of the technologies that are going into those cars, not just on the artificial intelligence side, but in terms of the sensor arrays that are going into those cars, things that are costing tens of thousands of dollars per car, those create a substantial opportunity for our investors. That's exactly right. So we're not just talking about investing into the big household names and technology that everybody thinks about. Those may be the biggest companies in the stock market, but it's really Going below that, who are the people who are actually supplying them with the components of building these new technologies? And then everybody talks about disruption across industries today. So, A, it's not just in the tech sector. We can also look in retail. We can look in media. But there'll also be winners and losers. And that's actually an area where, for instance, an active equity manager can add value quite easily by avoiding the losers and spotting the winners. So there are absolutely investment opportunities from these trends today. Thank you for joining us on Insights. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on January 18th, 2018. The company, stock names mentioned in this podcast are not to be interpreted as a recommendation to buy or sell. 
The use of the above companies is in no way an endorsement for J.P. Morgan Asset Management Investment Management Services. For the purposes of MIFID 2, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID 2 slash MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia, to wholesale clients only, 
as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.